Once upon a time, next to a great forest, there lived a woodcutter with his wife and two children. The boy's name was Hansel, and the girl's name was Gretel. The family had little to eat to begin with, but then a great famine came to the land. One night, while laying in bed, the woodcutter turned to his wife worriedly and said, What is to become of us? How can we feed our children when we have nothing for ourselves? Man, do you know what? Answered the woman. Early tomorrow morning, we will take the two children out into the thickest part of the woods, make a fire for them, and give each of them a little piece of bread. Then leave them by themselves and go off to our work. They will not find their way back home, and we will be rid of them. No, woman, said the man, I will not do that. How could I bring myself to abandon my own children alone in the woods? Oh, you fool, she said. Then all four of us will starve. All you can do is plane the boards for our coffins. And she gave him no peace until he agreed. The two children had not been able to fall asleep because of their hunger, and they heard what the stepmother had said to the father. Gretel cried bitter tears and said to Hansel, It is over with us. Be quiet, Gretel, Hansel said, and don't worry. I know what to do. Early the next morning, the woman came and got the children from their beds. They received their little pieces of bread. On the way to the woods, Hansel crumbled his piece in his pocket. Then, little by little, Hansel dropped all the crumbs onto the path. The woman took them deeper into the woods than they had ever been in their whole lifetime, and then made a large fire. Sit here, children, she said. If you get tired, you can sleep a little. We are going into the woods to cut wood, and we'll come get you in the evening when we are finished. When it was midday, Gretel shared her bread with Hansel. Then they fell asleep. And evening passed, but no one came to get the poor children. It was dark when they awoke, and Hansel comforted Gretel and said, Wait, when the moon comes up, I will be able to see the crumbs of bread that I scattered, and they will show us the way back home. When the moon appeared, they got up, but they could not find any crumbs, for the many thousands of birds that fly in the woods and in the fields had pecked them up. They walked through the entire night and the next day from morning until evening, but they did not find their way out of the woods, and so they laid down to sleep. When they awoke, they realized they were terribly hungry, for they had only eaten a few small berries. They walked and walked, but managed to only go deeper and deeper into the woods. If help did not come soon, they would perish. At midday, they saw a little snow-white bird sitting on a branch. It sang so beautifully that they stopped to listen. When it was finished, it stretched its wings and flew in front of them. They followed it until it came to a little house. The bird sat on the roof, and when they came closer, they saw that the little house was built entirely from bread with a roof made of cake and the windows were made of clear sugar. Let's help ourselves to a good meal, said Hansel. I'll eat a piece of the roof, and Gretel, you eat from the window. That will be sweet. Hansel reached up and broke off a little of the roof to see how it tasted, while Gretel stood next to the window panes and was nibbling at them. Then, a gentle voice called from inside. Nibble, nibble, little mouse. Who is nibbling at my house? The children answered, The wind, the wind, the heavenly child. They continued to eat without being distracted. Hansel, who very much liked the taste of the roof, tore down another large piece, and Gretel poked out an entire round window pane. Suddenly, the door opened, 
and a woman as old as the hills and leaning on a crutch came creeping out. Hansel and Gretel were so frightened that they dropped what they were holding in their hands. But the old woman shook her head and said, Oh, you dear children, who brought you here? Just come in and stay with me. No harm will come to you. Then she took them by the hand and led them into her house. Then she served them a good meal, milk and pancakes with sugar, apples and nuts. Afterward, she made two nice beds for them decked in white. Hansel and Gretel went to bed thinking they were in heaven, but the old woman had only pretended to be friendly. She was a wicked witch who was lying in wait there for children. She had built her house of bread only in order to lure them to her, and if she captured one, she would kill him, cook him, and eat him. And for her, that was a day to celebrate. Witches have red eyes and cannot see very far, but they have a sense of smell like animals and know when humans are approaching. When Hansel and Gretel came near to her, she laughed wickedly and spoke scornfully. Now I have them, they will not get away from me. Early the next morning before they awoke, she got up, went to their beds, and looked at the two of them lying there so peacefully with their full red cheeks. They will be a good mouthful, she mumbled to herself. And then she grabbed Hansel with her withered hand and carried him to a little stall where she locked him behind a cage door. Cry as he might, there was no help for him. Then she shook Gretel and cried, Get up, lazybones. Fetch water and cook something for your brother. He is locked outside in that stall and is to be fattened up. And when he is fat, I'm going to eat him. Gretel began to cry, but it was all for nothing. She had to do what the witch demanded. And now Hansel was given the best things to eat every day, but Gretel received nothing but crayfish shells. Every morning, the old woman crept out to the stall and shouted, Hansel, stick out your finger so I can feel how fat you are. But Hansel stuck out a little bone, and the old woman who had bad eyes could not see the bone and thought it was Hansel's finger. She wondered why he didn't get fat. When four weeks had passed and Hansel was still thin, impatience overcame her, and she would wait no longer. Hey, Gretel, she shouted to the girl. Hurry up and fetch some water. Whether Hansel is fat or thin, tomorrow I am going to slaughter him and boil him. Oh, how the poor little sister sobbed as she was forced to carry the water and how the tears streamed down her cheeks. Dear God, please help us, she cried. If only the wild animals had devoured us in the woods, then we would have died together. Save your slobbering, said the old woman. It doesn't help you at all. The next morning, Gretel had to get up early, hang the kettle with the water, and make a fire. First, we're going to bake, said the old woman. I've already made a fire in the oven and kneaded the dough. She pushed poor Gretel outside to the oven, from which fiery flames were leaping. Climb in, said the witch, and see if it's hot enough to put the bread in yet. And when Gretel was inside, she intended to close the oven and bake her to eat as well. But Gretel saw what she had in mind, so she said, I don't know how to do that. How can I get inside? Stupid goose, said the old woman. The opening is big enough. See, I myself could get in. And she crawled up, stuck her head into the oven. Then Gretel gave her a shove, causing her to fall in. Then she closed the iron door and secured it with a bar. The old woman began to howl frightfully, but Gretel ran away and the godless witch burned up miserably. Gretel ran straight to Hansel, unlocked his stall and cried, Hansel, we are saved. The old witch is dead. Quote, Hansel is supposed to have been eaten by the witch. Decades later, I exchanged emails with people on the internet. 
You wouldn't believe how many people named Huntsville are buzzing around out there in Cyberworld, said Armin Mivis in an interview from behind a plexiglass wall. A frightening thought, isn't it? But not nearly as frightening as the thought that there are also many people buzzing around in Cyberworld. People like Armin, who consider themselves to be the witch. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. Holly. Oh man. <laughs> I don't know that you will be when we're done, but like <laughs> that's ambitious. <laughs> hey Leslie. Hey Holly. Hey Fiends. Ooh, we have some news this week before we start. What is it? Well, first, <laughs> thank you to all of our patrons for voting on our 100th episode. Yeah. Which wowzers. is Isn't it crazy that we're at 100? I said it last week, I know, but like <laughs> I just can't get over it. And um, buckle up, because you guys are getting more than you bargained for. The winning topic was, drumroll please, imagine a drumroll. John will put it in. Excellent. (laughs) The disappearance of Mark Heimbaugh, which is a local case for us. And I was a little surprised, because we have patrons that are not just from, you know, Cape May County. Um, And I used to live in Mark's neighborhood. I would roller skate past his old house where his mom still lives on most sunny days. And I would wave to her as I went by. Uh, And we know some of his former classmates. Like, we have a lot of connections Mm -hmm. to this case. And because we have access to so much information when it comes to this one, and because it's personal to us in a lot of ways, instead of doing it for the 100th episode— We have decided to do an independent series on Mark's disappearance under the We Would Be Dead umbrella. This will be a whole separate multi-part podcast that will go deep into Mark's case. And this is a pretty big deal for us. Yeah. I'm really excited and a little nervous. It's ambitious. We'll be talking to as many locals who dealt with this case originally as humanly possible. I already have a few interviews lined up. I bought the detective who dealt with Mark's case. He wrote a book very recently. Uh, We have that book. Hopefully we'll get to talk to him. There's a lot. There's a lot going on. And we would love to be just a small part in the force that eventually brings Mark home. But we're not detectives. We're podcasters. And the best way we know how to help is is this. Mm -hmm. So um, look forward to that. Anyone with information on this case or a personal connection to it should contact We Would Be Dead or either Leslie or myself personally as soon as they can. We'd love to talk to you. Um, and we know that you're out there in our listenership. So the series is going to take time to produce, though, because we're, we're going to do it right. So instead, for our 100th episode, you will get your runner-up selection, which is the mysterious, to some, death of grunge god and rock icon Kurt Cobain. So many of you guys suggested Kurt Cobain and have since the first episode we did. Mm-hmm. So I think you're going to be okay with the runner-up. Anna, I think it'll be fine. 
And the series on Mark is going to be good, or there's going to be a lot. And yeah. I, I feel very strongly about doing this as an independent series. And I think I have talked about it since Leslie and I started mm-hmm. podcasting, that I always felt that it was a project in and of itself. But like until I was faced with covering it in one episode, I couldn't really put together the fact that like, yes, it does deserve right its own thing. And this at least like doing the voting kind of pushed us. Yeah, because we it. saw that there was definitely interest in it, mm-hmm. which I was like, this is like made national news. There's a dateline about it. There's a, I mean, it's not unknown, mm-hmm. but it is also like far more local. Yeah, it's very yeah. local for us. Like I, I can't. The pictures in the book and every picture that is associated with Mark's case was scenery that I walked by every day of my life for 10 years. Mm-hmm. Like, my house was right there. It's the reason that I kept my children inside. It's the reason they weren't allowed to walk places by themselves. There's so much in that case. So, right. yeah, we will keep you posted on that. So that's what we have to look forward to. Next. This week's source material is the book Interview with a Cannibal, The Secret Life of the Monster of Rottenburg by Gunther Stampf. Gunther Stampf spent over 30 hours interviewing Armin Mivis for this book, and the story is then told in Armin's own words and the words of the people closest to him. It is as intimate of a look into this case as you can get. It's super graphic and very difficult to read. Do I say I recommend it? I can't in good conscience really tell you to read it because it's tough. But if you're looking for more, then go ahead and go for it. At times, it left me pale and nauseated, which, as you know, is not really a good look. And if we have learned anything from the Harry Potter universe, it's mm-hmm. that when something is attempting to suck the joy out of you, you need a little something sweet. And in my opinion, there's nothing sweeter than a few heartfelt drops of, say it with me now, Validation. Validation. Yes, and as luck would have it, the only people that can give us such a thing is you. So, if you would like to keep Leslie and I fresh-faced and rosy-cheeked, you can head on over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating or whatever you use over there. I still haven't looked. And or a friendly review. It really is one of the only ways to move this podcast forward. Please get us on some good lists to balance out all of the FBI watch lists that I am definitely on now. Like, after this week, 100%. Turn our red flags green, won't you? (laughs) And if you want even more We Would Be Dead in your life, you can head on over to Patreon, where for just a few dollars a month, you can get extra minisodes, special offers on our merch, the chance to vote for future episodes, access to our patrons-only podcast, 30-minute horror movies, our video after show, Host Mortem, an on-air toast dedicated just to you, and more. And if all of that is too much for you, you can simply share anything in our social media feeds to your social media feed, post about your favorite episode, let us know when you're listening, tell a friend, tell a neighbor, tell the guy who slices the cold cuts at your local supermarket who you will never be able to look in the eye again after this episode. What's his name? Oh, Ken. Ken. Oh, no. (laughs) It is Ken. It's Ken. Then your friends and Ken can become fiends and we can all hang out together. If you want to. (laughs) Hey, Ken. Hi, Ken. I think that's all the news from me. Leslie, do you have anything to add before we begin? Actually, Holly, I did not come prepared today with anything. So, yeah. Are you sure you just mentioned something like right before we began? Yeah, I guess I can say this. Okay, so uh, today. I thought you had it. <laughs> uh, so today is Tuesday, right? Yes. And uh, which means that yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, a sale started on our Spreadshirt site, which is our merch store. Mm-hmm. 
uh, which you can get to on our website. Uh, but I will have probably posted a link on all of our socials Yeah, we'll make everywhere. sure it's in our socials a couple times. So yep. if you miss mm-hmm. it, you can find it. Uh, but you can go to our merch store, and there you will see a brand new logo. Yes. And you can get on some fun new merch things. And uh, and it's also 15% off for a couple days. So Discounts are out. awesome. Why While it's hot. Yeah, get some merch. All right. You had I, something. Yeah, but I am honest when I said... That I did not come prepared. That's true. But you still had something, and we're all going to hold it in our hearts for a long time. Okay. All right, then. Snack on that. (laughs) But put down your snacks, because this is you don't want to eat while you're listening to this. (laughs) All right, then. On with the show. A warning right in the beginning this week. This episode is super gross. I read things I can never unread. And I read the source material for Albert Fish. Thankfully, there are no kids and no dead pets, so we have that going for us, which is nice. There is, however, a whole lot of talk about human butchery and corners of the internet I was definitely okay not knowing about. So that's why if I wasn't on any lists, I definitely am now, because this is some dark web shit. And while it's really tough to understand, I will say that most of the people who identify as cannibals in like this kind of situation online are really just into elaborate role play and like S&M stuff, most people don't think they're getting into a situation where they will be straight up murdered and butchered like a pig. Mm. But that's what happens this time. An in-depth exploration of what makes people desperate to consume other humans or be consumed themselves and the very rocky legal moral road of consensual killing is a little bit of what we have for you today. Consensual killing is probably a difficult phrase to wrap your brain around and should not be confused with assisted suicide, uh, medically or otherwise. This would not exist anywhere near the right to die movement or something like the Hemlock Society. It's very different. Mm. So I know you guys are probably thinking, well, you can't consent to be murdered. That act is a two-way street because it does involve, you can't just say, yes, I want you to do this illegal thing. The other person has to also do it. And morally, you're right. But legally, depending on where you live, you're wrong. To a degree... You definitely can say you want that to happen. And in some countries, like Germany, it will make your killer's sentence far lighter, provided you have a documented agreement. So rather than be charged with murder that comes with a life sentence, they could be charged with something lighter and only get like seven, eight years. Okay. Woof. You guys still with me? All right, then. You've been warned. Let's get into the story. Sounds fair. Fair enough. You did say you (laughs) wanted it, so. One of Armin's friends, I don't think I have this in the text, but it was one of my favorite quotations when he was interviewed. It's like one of his friends from his younger life. And they got to the point where they were like, oh, you know, you saw what he did. (laughs) His friend was like, well, you know what I always say, supply and demand, let them do what they want. (laughs) (laughs) Supply and demand. And that's why they were friends. Yeah, I guess. I just thought he was like, ah, what am I going to do? It's fine. (laughs) It's not like it's coming for me. Yeah. So it was just an interesting take on it. All right, here we go. In the rolling hills of Germany's Black Mountains near the banks of the river Fulda lies the small hamlet of Wusterfeld. Wusterfeld is a place where time has stood still for hundreds of years. The earliest mentions of the town go back to the 11th century. And that's just documented mentions. The homes are time capsules, preserving a way of life that most of the modern world has long forgotten. It's medieval looking. It looks like medieval times. It was built in medieval times. It never came beyond that. 
The crown jewel of the town is a large manor house, sometimes known as Wustefeld, and its lineage is long. The original structure of the house was said to have been built in 9 CE. Okay. It was first found, or nine, not nine, sorry, 900 CE, nine. That's much different. Yeah, I was like, my notes are nuts. Sorry, you guys, that was a typo. It was first found in documents dated back to 1266 CE, which is also forever ago for a house people can still walk around in. That's older than most Americans can possibly conceive of. Europeans, you got some history. We have, like, not a lot. No. There are 36 rooms in the manor house, sprawling grounds complete with stables, and relics from the past everywhere you look. The home itself measures in at approximately 16,000 square feet. That's a nuts big house. Wow. And was meant as um, a supposed to be like a summer guest home for a wealthy family that would house like a ton of people in the, in the vacationing season. Okay. So they would be like, this is our summer home and we have all of our friends and extended family come to stay in the, you know, 25 bedrooms or whatever it is. That sounds so fun. And when, when you call it that, it does, yeah. <laughs> a suit of armor guards the ground floor. Hand-carved armoires are tucked in every bedroom. Formal living rooms measuring in at over 400 square feet and lavish dining rooms buzz with the electrical current of gatherings gone by. The home had belonged originally to the area's most prominent family. So first it was a wealthy farmer, and then it was kind of bought by similar people in the town. But as the years went by, it fell into a state of disrepair. To most, it had grown eerie. There is a haunted quality about neglected houses that is undeniable. I live in one. I'm sure my neighbors were terrified of my house before I moved in. I asked them. So this is like... The house that would not sell, and this large manor house would not sell, and so it ended up going to auction. While a money pit like that might seem a nightmare to most of us, Voltgald Mivis thought it was a dream. Mm. The nightmare would come later. Voltgald, which I'm going to not pronounce as nicely as we move forward, was a cold, cruel, and eccentric woman, though she did not start out that way. She had been married twice before she married her current husband, who gave her the surname of Mivis. And I know it's spelled M-I-E-W-E-S. I promise you it's Mivis. Her first husband had given her a son, but her second had not. And they both had abandoned her without warning. To Voltrod, the only way to keep someone close was to trap them. There are many ways to trap a man, whether it be financially, emotionally, through the bonds of a child, through manipulation. And Voltrod Mivis used them all. She viewed men as useful only in what they could give her or do for her. She did not see them as independent beings with independent wants and needs, just useful vessels. And her latest husband, Mr. Mivis, who was 19 years her junior, Ooh, girl. Seriously, bought her the manor house in Wusterfeld, which they could not afford, and gave her two sons. Or so she would have him believe. We'll get back to that. Mm. In 1961, Voltraud gave birth to her last son, a fair-haired boy she and her husband called Armin. And he would go on to be the only man Voltraud would ever keep. Voltraud and her youngest son would go on to live in the old manor on the hill alone, together, separated from the world. At first, though, the manor house was a vacation home for the whole family. A large and insane vacation home for a family of, what was it, five? Yeah, but... A vacation home nonetheless, and it made Voltrod happy, and nobody wanted to see Voltrod when she was unhappy. 
They would go there to spend summers and they would get, she would be like lost in her medieval times fantasies because she really liked medieval things. Right. So she would just lock herself in this big giant old house and like kind of pretend. Yeah. I mean, the this entire story sounds like, <laughs> uh, like a beginning of a fairy tale. Exactly. Okay. And it should. So that, and that's the world, the kind of world that Voltraud found more suitable than the current one. She didn't like modern, modern stuff. She Who just does. Get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> So they would go for summer vacation and then weekends also while the weather held out. But then they'd return to their apartment in Essen, which is a more developed city in Germany during the rest of the year. So, Leslie, we're going to start in 1961, which is a time that most people are not churning butter in their thousand-year-old barn, I don't think. But I don't know. I I um, I didn't really research this time period. Maybe you can tell us a couple of things about what the world yeah. not inside a medieval mansion was like. Okay. So uh, 1960s Germany is very similar to 1960s America, Great. London, everything like cool, that. Cool, swinging, very awesome. However, in Germany, they were kind of going through it at the time. Uh, first, the Berlin Wall was built basically overnight and separated East Germany from West Germany acting as like a physical barrier that symbolized the political divisions of the time. So those on the east side were under a communist government, and the wall stopped many East Germans from safely fleeing to West Germany for almost like three decades. Okay. And this was a, it was built overnight, meaning that like people that lived in just on the one side of East Germany now couldn't get to their family that might have been directly over the wall. That's so intense. Yeah. After over a decade of pretending World War II and the Nazis didn't exist, <laughs> the Frankfurt Auschwitz trials began in— A lot of German. A lot yeah, of German this week. Began in 63, reminding them of their past. They were like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry oh, so about like that. That Auschwitz. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, for a while they were like, let's just forget that this happened. Shh, it's fine. And no, they had nobody, to remember. Nobody name your kids at all for a while and we'll just mm-hmm. be chill. And now they don't talk about it again. We don't talk about Adolf. Mm. Um, the second half of the century was dominated by young people trying to progress their country. So again, okay. it's very similar to to America and, sure. and other parts of Europe. Protest, feminism, new lifestyles, anti-authoritarian education and sexual freedom, long hair, debates, demonstrations, rebellions, and new liberties were making lasting changes in political culture in the society of Western Germany. Okay, so everybody was pretty cool. But, because I know we're going to get into this a little bit with this guy. Sure. We're going to talk about fashion. Yes, please. Okay. In the 1960s, German fashion was defined by mod styles, which is modern styles. Okay. Fur and practical fashion, which is like the most German thing I could think of. So practical. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Styles often mimicked Western European and American fashions, especially in West Germany. Because remember, poor East Germany was Yeah, no good. We're in West Germany too, (laughs) by the way. Okay. And obviously they all had televisions, so they were watching all the news. And they they had like their models that they looked after and and everything. Twiggy was cool. Mm -hmm. Got it. So here are some of the popular styles in Germany. Lay them on us. Number one, the ski outfit. Straight up ski outfit yep. all the time. You're just ready to ski at a moment's notice. <laughs> so um, they had, this is what they called their practical fashion. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds very practical. It showed off comfortable clothes for skiing. 
The look started with corduroy or velvet trousers, a long-sleeve plaid shirt with a medium-sized collar, and a matching tall winter cap, plus a matching plaid belt with silver belt buckle. Nice. A white wool jacket with buttons down the front and adorning the large pockets of the collar finished off the winter look. I mean, that sounds pretty... It's nice. Pretty nice, yeah. I'm okay with that. But it's also exactly what I picture, like a ski outfit. For them being, yep. mm-hmm. and for by the way, anybody in the skiing, north being like being in the snow, that would be the worst outfit in the world. A wool coat and corduroy pants. As soon as you got wet, it would be the most the worst day of your life. It I would know. never dry out and would be so heavy. Not practical. No <laughs> nine. <laughs> nine nine yeah nine. <laughs> number two jeans yes. Because Germany enjoyed an age of income growth in the 1960s, boys began favoring stylish mod clothes such as jeans instead of lederhosen, the traditional shorts with long stockings or trousers and suspenders. So now everybody was like getting into jeans. They yeah, were being taking cool. up their lederhosen. That's how it goes. So the switch from lederhosen to jeans took some time. Because they were like... Who wants to let go of their lederhosen? I know. I know. Not me. And they had started... So lederhosen generally were, especially for boys, it was like the shorts, you know? Oh, yeah. But then they started making long pants for them. So they were like, oh, this is more practical. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, But then they were like, oh, but now jeans are in, so this isn't cool anymore. Oh, shit. I just so, gotta wear the jeans, I guess. <laughs> by the late 1960s, most young and older boys were choosing to wear... The mod style of skinny jeans worn with ribbed sweaters. Cute. I know, super cute. Number three is the wool suit. They love wool. God, for snowy place, <laughs> that's not, I guess they're not always snowy though, so. No, it's just cold. Yeah. German women wore high style, fashionable suits in the 1960s. A popular style sported a wool suit with a short jacket with a double button front panel. The highlight of this 1960s style was the richly appointed fur collar with matching fur hats. Ooh, cute. I, know, I like that. Me too. German women completed this couture fashion with leather gloves and a sparkling brooch adorning the fur collar. Very nice. Also cute. Yeah. I'm here for all of that. I know. I'm like picturing you in it. <laughs> I would totally wear this stuff. <laughs> Bring it on. Lastly, we have the dress and scarf. Many nineteen 19- sounds cute too. Yeah. Like I'm excited. This is this is us to a T. Nice. Many 1960s dresses were made of plain or printed materials, and this also reminds me very much of the 60s, like for yeah us. So they had plain or printed materials with hems below the knee and sported big white collars. Some included scarves sewn into the dress, attached from the collar. Some dresses were complemented with a narrow belt at the waist. Cute. Not quite a nipple belt, but... I mean, like, could yeah, be. Could be. You try hard enough, anything's a nipple belt. <laughs> and it usually was of the same material, not of your nipples. <laughs> no, less of a nipple belt then. Mm-hmm. These simple dresses sported three-quarter length sleeves, and German women wore silk stockings with dressy one-inch pumps with or without adornments, such as buckles or bows. Hmm. Yes. Very nice. So that was the fashion of the 1960s in Germany. Very cute. I like a lot of that fashion, but unfortunately, like, none of it comes into play in the Mivis household. Oh, no. Yeah. While the world was wearing, I guess the world in Germany was, like, covered in wool and fur and sparkly brooches and skinny jeans, Voltwald liked to pretend she lived in a time gone by. 
She dressed not in cute scarves and dresses, but um, an, a frilly lace blouse and the old-time dirndl, which is kind of like the lady version of lederhosen. It's the dress you see on like German dolls that laces up the front and it has that pattern. It's like overall type thing. And then she had a big lacy blouse underneath. Okay. And she wore what um, neighborhood, like people in the neighborhood referred to as big funny hats. Okay. Yeah. So she looked old timey and she would dress Armin similarly, all his friends. And we mentioned, I'll, I'm going to mention this again later, but because we just talked about fashion, I want to say it here. All of his friends would come to school exactly how you just mentioned. They all wore jeans, which was kind of a new convention, but they all wore them. And Armin came to school in leather shorts and polka dot shirts. Oh. So not even just like <laughs> no. Lederhosen. No. Because mm-hmm. that would have still been acceptable. Maybe it was, but um, the translation is rough because the book, when they interview one of his friends, they said he wore leather shorts and a polka dot shirt. Okay. Which to me was like, when was that ever okay? But I guess at one point in time it was. Well, so I saw a photo of a bunch of school-age children mm-hmm. in the early 60s mm-hmm. and what they were wearing. And half of them were wearing the jeans and sweaters. Like they all, it, it looked like kids of today too. Yeah. Like a bunch of hipsters That's really as well. funny. But then, and then the other half was wearing like the lederhosen and the girls like had the a, dress like a similar kind of thing on. Um, but or they also wore like the pants with the sweaters as well, and so it's just like but they looked like they looked like kids in America, right? But then they did just have their like lederhosen style, which huh? Well, they they say that the his his classmates don't say that this was like really weird. They're like he was a country boy, is how they referred to him. They were okay. like, oh, well, he's just not like city influenced. So I guess that makes sense wherein you were saying that that's how people had dressed beforehand and he just didn't adapt it to a new style. Yeah. So maybe, I mean, because maybe they had. Because it didn't make people make fun of him or not make, not befriend him. He just kind Yeah. Maybe they out. were like, oh, he's just a little behind times, but we. Yeah. And not fashion forward. It's all right. You don't have to be fashion forward. It's okay. Right. So Voltaire. But, but mm-hmm. let me just say, okay. that's really nice that his classmates were like, we, I thought so too. we accepted him. Yeah, they were like, he was a country boy. It's fine. That's nice. Yeah. There's a lot of, like, nice kids involved in this. And he's very nice up until he very isn't. Maybe they just don't have time to bully. Maybe not. Maybe in they've Germany, gone through they, enough. Okay? They, maybe they bullies might. in Germany in the 60s were not something yeah. you messed around with. <laughs> yeah. So maybe you they just get like, that shit to yourself. We're just going to accept everybody. How about we'll never discriminate again? Because that went poorly. So... <laughs> Good job, country boy. Yeah. <laughs> That's, that could be it too. You never know. But, yeah. So Voltron also did fun eccentric things like name all the rooms in her giant home. She had them all like, this is morning dew, and this Aww. is paradise, and this is eastern field. Armin's room was called Meadow. Oh, Yeah, cute. Armin describes himself originally as a daddy's boy. He said he loved his father and kind of followed him around like a puppy, helping him with chores and fixing up cars. His father was a warm and charming man who delighted him with magic tricks and made him feel loved. Armin called his father his, quote, one and only. And then one early autumn day, everything changed. Oh, boy. I know. On September 29th, 1970, it was a lovely and warm day. The Mivas family had shrunk down to four after Armin's eldest half-brother had moved to Berlin in 1965 to start his life. And I should say that this is a brother that is 15 years older than Armin, so right. that makes sense. Right. Do you do you know how old his mom was when she had him? At this point, she's 48. Okay. And 
Armin is eight, so about okay, 40. 40. Okay, and that makes sense. Or eight or like nine. Because like if her know, husband is 19 years younger than yes. her. Yeah. Then, okay. Yeah, he's real young. So then the four of them had gone to their vacation home for the weekend, and Armin was playing with the neighbor boys. Oh, wait. So he was 11? When? When? No, wait, that doesn't make sense. Hold on. I'm trying to do math. He was born in 1961. And no, right no, now. No, no, The husband. Oh. Was he like 11 or 12? He's not the father of the first one. No, but of Armin. Yeah, he wasn't 11 or 12. There was but no if way. she was 40 and he's 19 years younger than her. Yeah. Oh, okay, right. So he, okay, I got it. Math, we're Woo! good. <laughs> got scary for a minute. <laughs> I thought, I don't think so, but. No. He was, he was a legal man at yeah. this point. Okay. Just a legal man, not maybe anything else. He, he was a legal boy. <laughs> he wasn't a legal boy. Fetch, fetch me a boy. Yeah. <laughs> That's another episode. So sorry, guys. Matt, I'm doing math. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, Armin was playing with the neighbor boys because he was friends with all the boys at the uh, like neighboring farms and stuff, and they would always play together when he was there. Uh, and they were in a game of hide and seek. It was Armin's turn to hide, and he laid down in a field of thistles where the soft wind blew and caught them making a whispering sound. He smiled, but then something else caught his ear. It was shouting, and it was pouring out of the old manor house, shouting between his mother and father. And it was angry, far angrier than it had ever been before. His gentle, kind, young father was very, very angry. Armin stood up, not caring that his friend, the seeker, was going to be able to see him, and watches as his father shouts a few final words, slams the door of his car, the one that Armin loved so much, and drives away. Armin knew in his heart that this meant his father was never coming back. And he was right. He followed the car tearfully shouting for his beloved father to wait, stop, come back, or at least take him with him. But his father only looked back once and then stepped on the gas and drove away forever. On his way out of town, he also emptied the bank accounts and never paid child support or spoke to Armin again. Damn. Now. This is where most podcasts leave this story, but I can't let Armin's poor 29-year-old father go down like that. While Armin was told that his father was an evil man who cheated on his mother and left them with nothing, in reality, that was not true, and it was Voltrod who had done the damage. Armin's father, whose first name has never been revealed, and that's fine, had discovered that week, the one that he left, that his eldest son, so Armin's, um, like, not oldest brother, his, like, mm -hmm. middle brother— who was six years older than Armin, did not actually belong to him. 48-year-old hmm. Voltrod had had an affair with a young man they had taken on as a boarder one summer. He was troubled and suffering with schizophrenia and had nowhere to go. Voltrod had controlled him mercilessly and kept him as a secret lover and eventually drove him out the door. Because this was provable in a court of law, Armin's father was never again legally bound to his once family, including his biological son, because it was Voltrod's actions that ultimately broke apart their family. When he left, Armin's mother knew all of this, but did not explain it to her sons that way. Mm. She also did crazy things with her two previous ex-husbands. Like, after they left her, she was like, she would call the police on them and say they were, like, harboring prostitutes and all of this stuff, like, made up insane things about them to try and ruin their lives and get them arrested. Mm. Armin was devastated, but far worse still was the fact that just a few short weeks after his father's departure, 
his older brother left him to live with their eldest brother in Berlin, which I would probably have left too. If I'm like, well, I just found out I'm like an illegitimate son and my father left and I don't even know that that was my real father. I got to get out of here. And his brother said, you know, like, I'll take you and come live in Berlin with me. Armin was left alone with his mother. And what's even worse is that a few short months after that, his grandmother would pass away as well. Which was like one of the only other family members he saw. So now it truly was just the two of them. All the men in his life had abandoned him. And his mother made him assume the role of her companion and servant from there on out. Terrified of abandonment, and rightfully so, at this point, Armin devised a way to cope with this. He invented a little brother he called Frank. Now lots of... Frank. Sorry, yes, Frank. Lots of kids create imaginary friends to cope with a traumatic situation. Some psychiatrists view imaginary friends in traumatized children as a branch of the dissociative identity disorder tree. But Armin's imaginary brother did not stay a harmless imaginary playmate. As time went on, Armin realized that not only did he long for a brother, but he was also attracted to men in another way. And the only thing he had ever seen men do as either brothers or lovers was abandon people who loved them. Hmm. There had to be a way around this. And by 12 years old, Armin had decided that if he wanted a boy to be with him forever, he would have to eat him. Okay, I can see that logic. Can you? (laughs) So we've seen this before, though, in Cannibals, particularly with Jeffrey Dahmer, who Armin later did discover in life and admired some of his philosophies and images of his victims. Though it seems an easy parallel, make no mistake, these two men were vastly different. Armin would never do something unwanted. So he wasn't about to kidnap men and murder them violently. He, quote, abhors violence. He needed someone who wanted to die and wanted him to eat them so he could, quote, assimilate them, which is what he calls it. Hmm. Then they would be inside of him and with him forever as a, like a presence that would never, ever leave him. And he says this all throughout the book, that what he wanted was a brother, He did this because he wanted a brother. All he wanted in life was a brother that lived inside him and never left. Oh, like a, what is that, a chimera? A chimera? Chimera, you know, like like an absorbed twin or something. (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, Kind of, yeah, kind of. What if he later found out that that's what he had this whole time? This whole time. And he was like, oh. All of that for nothing. (laughs) Frank. (laughs) (laughs) No, Frankie. (laughs) But for Armin, consent is also key, which makes this very complicated. Now, these fantasies of eating a boy and keeping him with him forever Mm -hmm. would take over Armin's schoolboy daydreams. He would imagine disemboweling his classmates and eating their entrails. Graphically, he describes slitting open their stomachs down the middle and reaching inside, which, holy shit, for a 12-year-old is pretty graphic. Wow. Yeah. And I would struggle to imagine where he possibly got all this imagery from because that's not like an organic thing that your brain should just create as a kid. Uh Uh-huh. And I guess he did to a certain extent, but Armin also had inspirations. As a boy, it was not uncommon for Armin to witness the butchery of animals, especially hogs. Mm. Children living in such a rural and pastoral environment knew that they knew where their food came from, often raising it themselves. Armin also had a close friend who went on to become a butcher, and so first he was a butcher's apprentice. And so Armin would visit this friend in the shop all the time. His friend would eagerly share the tools of his trade. Like, this is what I learned today. This is what I did today. But Armin was like, yes, show me more. Show me more entrails and pigs hanging on hooks to drain 
Um, you know, he'd see like how they removed the organs and how they sectioned off meat and how what was roasts and what was chops. And he saw the whole process and he saw it as very simple and elegant and just kind of like right. And once something was dead, it was just meat to him, no matter what it was. And that's what he wanted. He wanted a person to butcher, break down into parts, then cook and eat so they could be with him forever. Boy. At 12? Holy shit. I know. And to him, this seemed impossible. And to all of us, it should seem impossible. That's crazy. Right. But the thoughts consumed him nonetheless. Pun intended. And he, like, obviously knew enough not to tell anybody. Right. Yes, right? No, he okay. didn't. He, like, he wasn't there, like, Mama. No. No, he was like, this is not, nobody's going to be okay with this. So, <laughs> so he didn't really talk about it too much. The other inspiration in Armin's life were stories. He does talk about watching Robinson Crusoe as a child with his mom. And there's, I guess, cannibalism or, or um, like hints of cannibals in that story. And he was like, hey, look, cannibals. And his mom was like, yeah, that's what they are. And it was like a very low-key just thing in the story. But he also um, was very familiar with Grimm's fairy tales. From the time he was just six years old, he would read to his mother before bed, which is not only backwards, but a big glaring metaphor for their entire relationship. Mm. And he would read her Grimm's fairy tales. The original versions over and over and over. Their favorite being the one I read in the opening, Hansel and Gretel. Armin would read the story of the little siblings abandoned in the woods who were almost eaten up by a witch that lived in a cottage of sweets over and over and over again. And his mother would laugh every time when they got to the part where the children were abducted by the witch. That's horrible. Fucked up, right? Yeah, the point where the witch like flips personalities and yeah. she's like, I'm going to put Hansel in a cage and feed him sweets. She was like, <laughs> Oh my gosh. Uh-huh. But to Armin... Even as a child, it seemed obvious that the witch was lonely and just wanted to keep the children forever. Yeah, I guess I can see that the way the mom takes the story. I guess, yeah. It could seem really just, sad. Just keep them then. They don't have parents that want them. Oh my God, that's like such a flip on the story. I know. What if, what if the witch was just lonely? <laughs> then just keep them. They wanted to stay. They talk about how they felt like it was heaven when they got in those little beds she made for them. They would have stayed forever. She did not need to eat them. No, she knew that they would want to go home to their mother. I guess so. She decided to eat them. Yeah. I don't know. And he, and he viewed her as more sympathetic. She lived alone in the middle of the forest and no one ever visited her. He was like, mm -hmm. I get you, witch. Yeah. So now I'm not sure if any of you guys have read the original versions of Grimm's Book of Fairy Tales, but they aren't the glossy Disney stories of your youth. They are dark, gory, moody tragedies for the most part. But we like that kind of thing around here. Mm -hmm. So, Leslie, can you, uh, can you tell us a little bit about Grimm's fairy tales, perhaps? Or some, or some, fairy, some uh, children's stories? Yes. Okay, so I know a lot of times I joke and I say, like, oh, I could just think of something off the top of my head. Mm -hmm. This is actually something that I could literally think off the top of my head. Because in high school and college, I was obsessed with finding the original versions of fairy tales. And I wanted to yeah. go as deep into it. And I have tons of books. Awesome on this stuff. So I decided to stick with the more popular ones, like the Disney versions sure. of things. So I'm going to start with The Little Mermaid. Oh my God. I, okay. <laughs> Before you begin, when I was a kid, obviously there are lots of versions of The Little Mermaid. Mm -hmm. And I remember when the Disney version came out because I was familiar with a far more true to form version <laughs> of it 
That is, you're going to tell people in a Mm -hmm. moment, and it is not the same. And so I remember being like, huh, this is nicer, but that's not what happens. Because I was that child. That's so funny. Mm -hmm. Oh, how horrible to know the original one. (laughs) Well, the fairy tale theater one is closer. Right. It is, yes. It's not Mm -hmm. nice. Yeah. That's the one that I was like obsessed with. And because Mm -hmm. of that, I had read other versions of it, but that's. Okay. Anyway. All right. So in Disney's animated musical, Ariel, the daughter of King Triton, makes a deal with Ursula, the sea witch, to be a temp to be temporarily turned into a human in exchange for her beautiful singing voice, which Ursula s- stores inside a shell. In the end, Ursula is defeated. Ariel regains her voice and gets to keep her legs, and she and Prince Eric get to live happily ever after. Of course. Disney. But in <laughs> Hans Christian Andersen's, which is more of a Danish fairy tale, yeah. things turn out very differently. Here, the witch silences the Little Mermaid by cutting off her tongue. Mm-hmm. And then in exchange for legs, the Little Mermaid now has to feel like she's walking on knives all yep. the time. It's super painful for mm-hmm. her. She's like, sure, you can have your legs now, but it's going to suck. It's going to be awful. Awful. Then the prince actually has the nerve to fall in love with somebody else. Yep. So part of the deal was that if the prince married someone else, the Little Mermaid would die the next day. What's worse is that the mermaids don't have eternal souls. This is like something known in the story. So when they die, they just dissolve into sea foam. Yep. The witch offers the heartbroken mermaid a dagger to kill the prince. If she does so, she'll turn back into a mermaid and be united with her family. She's like, this all go away. Let's make it even worse. Yeah. Yeah, just like kill the guy that, you know, like— you want to do it anyway. You fell in love with somebody else. You yeah. didn't even get what you wanted. And you're in pain on these, like, freaking legs of yours. <laughs> these, like, knife legs. You also have, you can't speak. You have no tongue. Yep. But I sound beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the Little Mermaid, being so sweet, mm-hmm. she can't bring herself to do this and decides to commit suicide mm-hmm. by jumping back into the ocean to become sea foam. Yep. In a later version, so not, so that's, like, one form, and then they kind of change it a little bit. So in a later version, her sacrifice actually allows her to become the daughter of air, and she floats around for 300 years. Oh, that one I've never heard. Until she finally makes it to heaven. So it's probably just a later version of them being like, we need to have something Boy, this was rough. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) She can just like turn into sea foam. That's the version I knew. So when Ariel lives, I was like, oh man, look at that. Yeah. (laughs) She had everything she wanted. No, that's great. Not what happens, but nice. But for all you little girls and boys out there, when you ever, whenever you see sea foam, that means it's just dead mermaids. Nice. (laughs) So in the um, the Land of Stories books, which Chris Colfer wrote, he was on Mm -hmm. Glee, um, and my daughter and her friends are pretty into them. I love. If you don't want a spoiler for one of the books in the Lands of Stories, skip past this. But if you don't care. Uh, they have like all of the classic fairy tale princesses living in this land of stories as like, you know, adult royalty. And in one, they have to find the little mermaid and she's the sea foam ghost. Oh. Yeah. But she like still visits them and like she can talk to people in, in her undersea kingdom, but she's like a ghost made of sea foam. So sad. Yeah. So they don't have her as a princess. Oh. Violet was like, huh? And yeah. I was like, all right, we Here gotta we go. talk. <laughs> Sit down. Yep. <laughs> All right, so the next one I have is The Story of Rapunzel. So for any of you that like Tangled. I know this one too pretty well. Yeah. I wrote a paper on this one, specifically the story. Did you? I did. That's so Mm -hmm. funny. Yeah. 
All right. So the Brothers Grimm tell the story of Rapunzel, held captive in a tower by a witch. A young prince happens upon this tower and meets Rapunzel, who lets down her hair. The prince continues to come back to visit Rapunzel. The two, this is much different than Disney, Mm -hmm. but the two quickly dial up their relationship into a sexual one. (laughs) Rapunzel tells the witch that her clothes are starting to feel tight. Uh Uh-oh. Shit. (laughs) The witch realizes that the prince has been sneaking up there and impregnating her. Furious, she cuts off her hair and banishes Rapunzel to the desert. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. I know. Where she, all alone, gives birth to twins. Meanwhile, the witch has set up a trap for the prince, who comes back to the tower in hopes of getting some action, and sees Rapunzel's hair out the window. He climbs up it to find that she is not on the end of it. The witch is there and pushes him out the window, where he calls, where he falls into thorny bushes that pierce his eyes, causing him to go blind. No, he falls eyeballs first. Yeah. It's intense. <laughs> The prince, now unable to see, wanders off. He can't make it home. He has no idea where I mean, he is. Yeah. <laughs> After some time, Rapunzel, trying to mother two children on her own in a deserted land with no food <laughs> or help. <laughs> not great. Starts to cry. Yeah. And the prince, who wandered off nearby, hears her. Like, somehow he made it to the desert. Oh, I'm here From in the Germany, desert. From Germany, he Blind. made it to the desert. <laughs> <laughs> And he's just like, oh, like, I hear something. And he goes towards the teary woman. Rapunzel sees her prince and hugs him. And her tears end up touching his eyes. And they have healing powers. So they end up healing his eyes. And now the prince can see that it's Rapunzel and his kids. (laughs) Oh, shit. (laughs) But luckily in this story, he is happy to see her. He takes her back to the kingdom because now he can see where he's going. Sure, sure, sure. Much easier and to walk. everybody accepted them and they live happily ever after. And they all after. live happily ever after. So that's a nice one. Yeah, that is a good one. Um, I didn't write this other one because it, it, it's actually a French story. So I stayed away from it. But um, Sleeping Beauty, which sometimes reminds yes. me of Rapunzel a little bit, you know, just because oh, of the... side note, my, my son is absolutely named after Flynn Rider. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yes, yes. I love Rapunzel <laughs> so much. So in Sleeping Beauty, uh, obviously we know that Sleeping Beauty is asleep. She's like comatose, right? Yeah. This story is sad because the prince that happens upon her, instead of like kissing her like a true love's kiss. Yeah. She's like continuously raped. Oh, God. And then she gives birth while still asleep. Cool. And the baby sucks out the needle that was in her finger that um, kept her asleep, yeah. right? Sucks that out, and that's what awakens her. And then she finds out that she has, like, a child. So the whole time it was just that the tip of the spindle was still in her finger? Yeah. I don't mm-hmm. know this one. That's nuts. Yeah. So that's, like, the original, like, French version of that story. Oh, shit. Yeah. And it goes, there's, like, more of how I don't even think she ends up with, like, the the prince. Well, you wouldn't after that. Yeah. That's terrible. No, but I think that she would have wanted to because better than but the they other made it seem like the guy. Yeah, like okay. he didn't really care. He was like, ugh, ew. Yeah, that's horrible. terrible. Horrible. I just hate that she was like they were just sleeping with her. Yeah, that's awful. Yeah. Ugh. Mm. All right. So in Disney's Snow White. Oh man. So this one is actually not far off from the Brothers Grimm version. However, there are a few darker pieces. First, the evil queen does not want Snow White's heart, but instead her liver and lungs, which she plans to serve up for dinner. So here's like kind of a cannibal act. Yep. 
And there's a lot of cannibalism in fairy tales. Oh, yeah. That um, Armin could have also yeah. kind of caught on to. There's a lot to. of, like, I ate her up. Like, yeah. um, and they Red Riding Hood is another you know? one. It's like they eat them and they get what they have. Yep. So, obviously, the witch would have gotten Snow White's youthful looks. Mm-hmm. Because also, this story, the original one, Snow White isn't even 10 yet when this happens. Uh, that's a thing with fairy tales. We have we see the Disney version where they look like women. The Little Mermaid is supposed to be mm-hmm. sixteen, which as yeah. an adult blew my mind. Right? Maybe we're like, I want to leave, Daddy, and he's like, That's fine, go get married. She was sixteen even at the end. Right, right. But also, but they were like kids. Right. But also for that, that didn't bother me as much because when you think of like old medieval times, yeah. that was like normal to me for sure. They were all supposed to be like 13, 12 years old. They're like kids. Yeah. So Snow White isn't even 10 yet. Oh my God. That's really young. Then most of the story is the same. There's like the dwarves and all that stuff. Right, right, right. And she she falls asleep. You know, she's asleep now at this point. She like, I forget how that happens, but she's. The apple. The apple, right. Yeah. The prince finds Snow White. He like happens upon her. But, but there's, like, three things in the original one, too. Like, she comes and sells her a corset that she laces too tight, and yeah. Snow White passes out. And then yeah. there's, like, another trial. Because I knew this one, too. Because yeah. I was mm-hmm. a very weird child, apparently. Yeah. Instead of, like, just the apple, there's, like, two things that fail. And then the third one is the is apple. the apple, right. Mm-hmm. So it's all very much the same mm-hmm. in that line. So the prince just happens upon her in the woods. And um, it isn't true love's kiss that awakens her though. Oh my god, it never is apparently. No. She actually wakes up from the jostling of the prince's horse, which he carries her on his, to his, his horse. Castle. Right. Yeah. Well I got really nervous like when <laughs> I remember being like, oh the jostling. I was like, oh the horse. Okay. He's fine, like fine, riding with her. Yeah. So she's like passed out. He's holding her mm-hmm. on the horse and they're like galloping to the castle. Why the prince wanted to take a comatose, seemingly dead girl back to his room, I'll let you be the judge. I mean but <laughs> She awakens and it's just like, ooh, you hot. I love so they, you. They marry. Uh, they invite the witch to the wedding, who they have wear hot iron shoes and make her dance herself to death. That's pretty sick. I like that one. I know. I like that one too. And lastly, um, this one was one of my favorites because Cinderella was always one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. I was I was blonde hair and blue eyes growing up, so I always I just liked that one Sleeping a lot. Sleeping Beauty was my favorite. Okay. Well, I Ruined. loved um, Prince Philip, right? Is that Prince Philip with the dragon? Doesn't Sleeping Beauty yes. have the dragon? Mm-hmm. And so I used he was my favorite prince because I was like, he fights a dragon. He sure does. So I was like, yes, he can take care of me. Fair enough. Yeah. And in the Disney version, he won't rape you while you're sleeping. No, 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 he won't. No. He's like beautiful golden hair yeah. and wears a vest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, Cinderella also has a very hot prince. Um, and this was actually the original. This is the... Uh, first original fairy tale that I read, which got me into all of it. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So, and I actually like this one better. So Cinderella was um, definitely darker. In Grimm's version, Cinderella's fairy godmother is actually a magical tree with little birds who help her out. It's like Into the Woods. A lot of these are are Mm -hmm. in their original format in the musical Into the Woods, if you're a musical person. After the ball, so again, it's a bunch of similar stuff. Stepsisters are still terrible. After the ball, the prince goes around with the tiny-ass shoe to see who it can fit. <laughs> Both her stepsisters are desperate to fit into the shoe. One chops off her toe. Yep, into and, the woods does this. <laughs> yeah, and the other tries slicing her heel in order to fit. Is that what they do yeah, into the they, woods? Yeah, okay. I played one of the stepsisters when I was younger. Okay, so that's like where they got that yeah. from. 
Um, Ultimately, the prince is reconnected with Cinderella and the two get married. At the wedding, Cinderella's late mother sends the birds, which I love this. So like her mother up in heaven sends the birds from the magical tree to peck out the evil sister's eyeballs. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Had my eyeballs pecked out and everything. Oh, wow. (laughs) Good times. That's awesome. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and I never saw that play. A lot of the fairy tales, they use their actual form. Like, they use their real stories in that show, which is pretty fun. Yeah. I would have been stoked. I'd be like, (gasps) You would have gotten it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I like it. That's awesome. So, yeah, so those were some of the fairy tales. Right. So, I mean, and I suppose a lot of children of that, not even of that time, it's the 60s. I don't think they were reading Grimm's fairy tales over and over again in most households. No. So the fairy, well, I guess the Snow 60s. Nobody had already come out in the Disney version. That was the 30s. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So the fairy tales were definitely, for at that age, they were, they've become children ones. But I think they had already started to switch them over to be a little bit nicer. Because these right. brothers Grimm's, brother Grimm, oh my God, brothers Grimm. Yeah was a lot more for older children and adults. They were written for adults. Yeah. Yeah, They were not supposed to be for little kids. No. And most of them were all supposed to be like moral stories of for like a young woman to be like, don't run away and talk to strangers and, Mm -hmm. you know, be careful who you talk to. And And if you sleep um, nice enough, lots of guys will fuck you. Yeah. Like you don't even have to do anything. It's fine. Just like stay home and shit will happen to you. Exactly. You'll get a baby. It's fine. Mm -hmm. Awful. (laughs) Well, anyway, the thought of him reading them over and over and over aloud to his mother out ad nauseum, that could probably, could probably like hammer home some of those things into your brain. Right. As a kid. Throughout school, though, he was, Armin was considered polite, kind, and fun to be around. He had lots of friends, some of which would spend the weekends with him at his country home. They would like come on, like go to that big manor house with him. And, and then those friends are like, oh, it was awesome for a little kid. You had this like big giant house and stables and these huge grounds and it was fun. We always had a great time there. His mother was like a little much, but we barely saw her. Mm -hmm. And he would, they, he and one of his friends made over the basement in the manor house as like their party room. They put in like a bar and like made it cool and they used to throw parties. All of this sounds like pretty innocent and fun. Yeah. And friends remember him like really fondly. And as I mentioned before, he was a little different in some ways. They called him a country boy because of his leather shorts. Um, <laughs> Which I don't get. I don't but. either. I can't <laughs> explain it to you. And when he wasn't at school or with his friends, Armin didn't leave the estate. Like his mother was basically a recluse. Like she never came, mm. never left the grounds. And if he didn't have like prior commitments, he didn't leave either. He would stay with her more often. Um, and neighbors remember seeing him doing chores but then if his mother called him, like, she would scream for him. He would drop everything he was doing to wait on her hand and foot. One of them remembers every Sunday she would scream for him, and he would have to set up a chair out in the garden, then set up a stone end table next to her, and then fetch her coffee and cake on whatever china she specified. So he couldn't even just get her a plate. And if mm-hmm. he got her the wrong china, she'd be like, that's the wrong china, switch it. Yeah, this sounds a lot like the relationship between my mother and brother. <laughs> get out of here. <laughs> Adam, but it he's also such a sounds, good little boy. Oh my god! It also sounds a lot like a fairy tale. It does, yeah. Oh, he is Cinderella. Kind well, of, kind of. Well, yeah, but he's like enjoying it a little. No, bit. he doesn't oh, like this not. part. No, okay. this just influences the way he behaves. He becomes an extremely obedient person, and when people request something of him, he is compelled to comply no matter what. And why is this wrong? Yeah, it's not. It's fine. Just do what people tell you to do always. Friends also observe his homosexuality from an earlier age. Okay. And I say this because that's what they call it. 
Armin himself says he identifies strictly as bisexual, and if you call him homosexual, he will fight you, which is fine. You should be able to identify with whatever you feel you are. Mm -hmm. But in this case, there is some questions because the women he had relationships with also strongly believe that he was not actually attracted to them. He just wanted a female companion so that he could have that, like, I have a family, I have a wife, I am meeting standards that people want me to meet, I'm giving my mother this image that she wants in me. Um, and a lot of people believe that he just held on to the fact that a female companion was possible because he felt like he needed to and not he wanted to. But I don't, I don't know this. And nobody really can say. And the women he did have relationships with also say that while they dated, they never had sex with him. They would kiss or hold hands. He says he had sex with all of them. <laughs> they deny it. This is not for us to judge, but it is merely something to consider because of the conventions of the time and the strangeness of the situation. Okay. So I'm just adding it into the mix. After Armin graduated high school in 1980, he and his mother moved to the manor house in Wusterfeld full-time. But scarcely a year went by before Armin decided to enlist in the armed forces, where he remained enrolled for 12 years. Oh, wow. Yeah, he was a soldier for 12 years. During this time, this was like the happiest time of his life, too. Armin claims to have been barely ever thought of slaughtering people and eating them to keep them with them forever. And and he was away from his mother. Yeah. So there is something to that. That's why it's like so important for your kids to go out sometimes. Yeah, to have a life. <laughs> Aside from you. Armin made good friends in the armed forces. Um, and there are a lot of sources that say he got engaged. He did not. Armin also claims that he got engaged. He did not. He said this was to a woman named Petra, who he met through a matchmaking service. Like in the in the army, there was a woman in town. Who, they were like, go see madam. What's her name? And she'll set you up with a girl. And like single girls without prospects would like give their information to her to be set up with soldiers. Oh, she was like a local match.com. Exactly. So Petra was set up with Armin, and she says that they dated. He says they dated. She says they kissed. He says they kissed. Then he says they had sex a whole bunch of times, and she says, absolutely not, that never one time happened. But what they both agree on is that the reason they broke up is because of Armin's mother. Armin's mother did not like Petra, mm. obviously, because she stood for something that could take her, take her son away from her. If Armin got married, he would leave her home forever and have this wife, and she did not care for that. So she was like, oh, well, she's coarse. I don't like her. She's rough. Get her out of here. And eventually she broke the two of them up. They couldn't live in that big place together. One would think, but like she didn't, she didn't want any. We're only 12 rooms down, mother. I know, right? <laughs> See you in the morning for breakfast. And their bedrooms were right next to each other. Ew, there's so many 36 rooms. rooms and they had, they had bedrooms that were like separated by one wall. I know. Also, while he was in the armed forces, um, they would have like weekends where there would be like balls or, you know, like military balls and stuff like that. And most of the soldiers would bring like girlfriends or wives and he brought his mother to everything. And they were like, that's weird. You're supposed yeah. to bring a date and you brought your mom in an old timey lederhosen dress. Huh? Oof. Yeah. So that was like, everyone thought that was a little off. And several other young women that he says to have dated met the same fate. He would date him for a little while. His mother would break him up. Armin also had homosexual relationships during this time in the armed forces, and he does admit to having them in, like, high school, too. There were boys that he said he fooled around with, and there were soldiers he fooled around with in the shadows. 
His friend Klaus Nolka, who I mentioned earlier, put it like this, quote, service is service and liquor is liquor. Ooh. This is Franz who was like, not Franz, who Klaus, who was like, supply and demand. <laughs> He's full of one-line zingers. I enjoyed him quite a bit. Klaus um, and a group of his friends said that Armin also joined them on a sailing trip, but Armin had to keep it secret from his mother. She would never have allowed him to go somewhere else, which is weird because he's like in the army. Okay. And there's also a video that exists of Armin on this vacation making like really funny, dirty jokes and flirting with boys, cracking jokes, smiling in the sun. It all seems like super normal. Then things take a turn, as they always do. In 1993, after a series of several automobile accidents due to driving under the influence, Armin was discharged from the armed forces and sent back to Wusterfeld to live with his mother in the manor home. Oh, it sucks. Bad news bears. And this was devastating. Like, he loved being a soldier, and he loved the life he had made, and Mm -hmm. leaving to go back and live with his mother was not what he wanted to do. And for, like, a disgraceful reason. Yeah, exactly. That was not anything you could be proud of. Right. And then, as soon as he got back to Wusterfeld, all his fantasies came back. Oh. But with one new element to play with, the internet. (gasps) In the early 90s, computers were suddenly everywhere, and the World Wide Web had begun to take off. Armin experienced them and immediately knew that they were for him. He was like, I got onto computers. I was like, I love computers. I want computers forever. He took a few courses and learned how to repair and program them attempting but ultimately failing to start a computer school with his brother. He's like, that's okay. We'll teach computers. We'll do it together. Maybe you can move back here. It'll be great. And for a minute, they thought they were going to do that. And then it just didn't, they didn't get any students and it didn't work. Armin instead got a job at a computer store and found solace in a computer he bought for himself and kept at home. So he also had to repair them. So he had like workshops at home where he would take things apart and put them back together. And this was kind of like an office. So he didn't have to be in his bedroom that was like right next to his mother's at times. And so he began spending more time online looking for a connection with someone, casting a line into the sea of faceless people and hoping against hope to find what he was looking for. Now, while this sounds romantic and very like, you've got mail, it turned out that what he was looking for was porn. Mm. Yeah, and I don't know if you know this or not, going to blow your mind. But on the internet, there is no shortage of porn. Oh. Yeah, there's porn there. I heard that the internet was made for porn. Yeah. That's what Avenue Q tells me. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, he agrees. (laughs) But while there were many chat rooms where Armin could engage in like sexy chats and instant messages and exist solely in a fantasy world, the photos... (sighs) He couldn't seem to find what he wanted, so he took to making his own. Now, at this point in time, his friends had also said they, like, had a party at his house and discovered um, pornographic materials that featured mostly men and men. Mm -hmm. And they were like, oh, you're gay. And he was like, no, I'm not gay. Get out of here. And to this day, he's like, I actually didn't buy them to look at the gay acts. I bought them because they featured full-body images of naked men, and I wanted to use them to create my own stuff. And he Mm -hmm. did. He discovered the crafty world of staged photos and photo editing and made a series of what he regards as pieces of art. But most people would call them graphic, violent, gory pornography. In these photos, Armin sculpts body parts out of marzipan, concocts fake blood out of ketchup and kitchen spices. The police would confiscate 20 of them and all in the end because as much as he does this on his computer, 
in even like chat room stuff and, and everything, he prints everything out and keeps it in files. Every email he writes, every chat he has, every picture he makes, he will print out and keep a hard copy of in a file. Sounds very German to me. Sounds very dumb to me. <laughs> yeah. Especially yeah. when you're doing like really weird, so risky organized. stuff. Yeah, he's 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 a lot of things. So but as of right now, he's just being weird, right? He's not we, doing anything illegal. Here we go. Okay. So this is what the police confiscated. These are the 20 photos. The first is a, and it's not illegal at this point. It's certainly upsetting though. Right. The first is a diorama that he made by hand of Ken dolls in a makeshift slaughter room that he Ken. made like a diorama. Ken, oh, Ken. And it's these dolls laying on tables being dissected. Okay. Armand had then used a computer to edit the photos he took of the Ken dolls in this diorama he made to make them look more like real bodies. Mm. Picture two is Armand's hand holding a dildo vacuum sealed in a plastic bag as though it would be presented in like a butcher's case. So it's like, Ugh. I bought this dick to eat. These are online, right? No, these ones aren't. Picture three is Armin with his hands bound, hanging from a hook on the wall. Actually, some of these are, not the graphic ones, though. And he explains this picture um, he had to edit because he could not get um, the, the hanging from his hands to work originally because he got handcuffed. So he edited it to be like ropes and to be working, whereas it wasn't, I guess. Huh. I don't know. That was a really weird way to phrase that. Sorry, guys. Picture four is Armin in an empty blue bathtub, which is the bathtub in his home. His eyes are closed. His hands and feet are photo edited out, and he appears to have bled out post-slaughter. Picture five is a photo collage of a naked man from a porn magazine placed in a cage, and Armin had created the whole thing and then smoothly edited out, like, the seams digitally. So he put, like, this picture in a cage he created, took a picture of it, and then edited that. This is how he does this. Mm. Picture six is a male body Armin had modeled out of marzipan and cocoa powder. Marzipan is um, kind of like a predecessor to fondant. It's like a sugar paste, gum paste type stuff that you can make those little candied fruits out of that mm -hmm. your grandmother probably likes. <laughs> and so this model is missing the hands and feet, and it's being flame roasted, and it has a fork and knife stuck in its butt. Ew. Yep. Picture seven is Armin naked on his back using ketchup to represent incisions he would make to slaughter a body for consumption. Okay. Picture eight is Armin hanging from the ceiling like a pig in a butcher shop. Picture nine is Armin using ketchup and a knife to mimic slitting his own throat. And he calls this one representative of, quote, the horrors of assimilation. Because he was interested, he wasn't interested in killing people. He was just interested in what would come after it. Right. So to him, this was showing what was bad about it. Yeah. The rest of it was fun. It's like, I hate that this is what I have this to do. Part of my, but then yeah. the outcome is... Well, and, and if you were talking about, like, an animal that is used for food, none of us would raise your head if you were like, I really hate that we have to kill animals, but I understand that sustainably this is what happens in the course of life. Yeah. Talking about a human, though, that's very different. Uh-huh. Um, obviously. The remaining <laughs> 10 pictures in the 20 are just male body parts being dissected and prepared for roasting, the grand finale of which is a photo of Armin with a broomstick in his backside mimicking being roasted on a spit. So he shoved a broomstick in his ass and, and pretended. He's roasting? Yep, and he's being roasted over a fire. That one is a little comedic. I know. <laughs> the other ones are so gross. And yeah. then I just keep thinking because of the ketchup, he's also like, and this is it's blood, but also the condiment. 
He talks a lot about, like, I had to mix it with cinnamon and paprika and stuff to make the consistency and color different. He really thinks these are works of art. And when he's talking to the guy that he that writes the book in the interview, he's, like, very, very proud of them. He thinks they should be, like, you know, people should like looking at them and they should be exhibited as artwork. Someone out there. This is photoshops of, like, Ken dolls on a table and shit. Like, I yeah. don't know what to tell you, but he doesn't think that this is, like, his weird perversions. It's he like thinks it's, like— a coffee table book. Right. Here's me with a broomstick in my ass. Roasting. On a spit. On an open fire. <laughs> Chestnuts. No good. Anyway. Wow. Yeah. So that, I couldn't imagine being the investigators that And there's so that. much more materials than this. This is yeah. just the tip of the iceberg. That's to be so disturbing. And Armin says he created these images for himself. He said he couldn't find anything like them anywhere else, and so he made them because they excited him sexually. And here's where we tie in the sex. Because okay. we have hit... Online, sexy chat, fantasies of cannibalism, everything starts to come together into one big scary soup. The slaughter had mixed with the pornography in his head and the fantasy began to form. Now, what's really weird, and I will put a link to this article in in notes somewhere, is that this kind of photo editing stuff still exists on the internet in forums with people who fantasize about cannibals. There's a Vice article about it where the guy talks to someone who does these kind of things, these photoshops, and he sends them a photo of himself and the guy makes him a photoshop of him. It's very weird. But he's not the only one who did this shit. This is a very primitive precursor to what people do now. Okay. Which struck me as so strange. But it's there. Then, in 1996, Armin and his mother are in a disastrous car accident. Armin was able to walk away from it, but it rendered his mother bedridden for the rest of her life. She broke every rib in her body damaged internal organs. So now she was bedbound and that meant Armin was housebound when he couldn't Oof. when he wasn't at work. Yeah. So he's locked in this house with his mom every waking moment that he's not at work. So the computer became his whole entire world and therefore he becomes enveloped in these cannibal fantasies that he's having all the time. And he discovers the dark and veiled world of internet cannibal forums, which like I said, is still around today. Look up Gilberto Valle, the cannibal cop, will cover him one day, but that's what got him in trouble. These forums are billed as a place of fantasy role play for people who have sexual fantasies that involve either eating a human or being eaten and everything in between. The more violent and bloody, the better. These forums use S&M role play language, like, you know, your cannibal is your dominant and your meat is your submissive. And they act out pretty much the most unspeakable things one can ever imagine. Like, like think of the worst thing in the world, it's there. Armin spends all of his time, and I cannot, I cannot stress this enough, in these forums, locked in these fantasies, talking to these people. So reality and fantasy gets real blurry real fast. Mm. It's like the catfishing people. Yeah. They get just like addicted to these it, weird storylines. It's exactly like that. Precisely. You become somebody else. And so he's like in this large, echoey, empty estate with his bedbound mother just a few rooms away. And that's pretty much how I imagine anyone who would be talking about this kind of shit. Yeah. Yeah, you're probably that guy. So, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yes. Yep. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Armin sends his artwork to other men with similar tastes as well, and they respond enthusiastically. So there are guys that are like really like this stuff. He seeks out men who calls themselves meat, and he has taken to call him, calling himself a master butcher. He refers to himself in these forums as Frank or Frankie, which you may remember was the name of his imaginary brother. 
but now it seems to have morphed into almost an alternate personality. Mm. By day, he is Armin, a friendly and helpful computer technician who cares for his disabled mother. He has friends and neighbors who enjoy his company. He is social and kind and courteous and charitable. He's good with children even and helpful in the community. But at night, he is Frank, the master butcher, who is looking for a man to slaughter. These fantasies go on as just that for the next three years, just living in this fantasy world all the time. Until September 2nd, 1999, when Armin returns from work to find his mother cold and dead in her bed. And after that, he can get to work. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. For good or for ill, Armin is free. Through his Cannibal Fantasy Forum discoveries, he finds one called the Cannibal Cafe. You can way back machine this and still see. Yeah. Still see it. There are men that place ads, basically, for what they want. And many of them are looking for someone who will kill them and eat them. Or there are people who want to kill and eat a person. And they claim to be serious. And Armin is in heaven. He can hardly believe this is real. Yet these men, like, they really seem like they want someone to eat them. And he's like, I found it. I found people like me. Someone is going to surrender. I'm going to eat them. They're going to assimilate. It's going to be great. But for most people, as I mentioned earlier, though it seems very realistic, it's elaborate role play. They don't really want murder to happen. Right. They just want to talk about it a lot. Not that I think that's great. But still, for most people, the disconnect is there. Where you realize, like, yes, this says, I want someone to, and then there's graphic language about how you want to be sexually used and, and murdered and eaten. But you think, okay, that's, this is a fantasy we're living out, not, oh, yup, check, check, please, we're going to do that. It's like those, like, rape fantasy yeah, type of things. exactly. It's exactly like that. But Armin took it totally seriously. As I mentioned earlier, people say a lot of things on the internet and don't mean them, but... For Armin, this was a very real desire and a very sacred act. And this gave him permission to think that it could be real, and it eventually was. Armin goes about preparing a room in his house for his eventual slaughter. Now, he's like, well, this is going to happen, so I have to get ready. Okay. The room on the top, there is a room, sorry, on the top floor that is drafty and unused in a wing of the manor house that no one ever touches. And it is, appropriately enough, the smoke room. Now, all old estates, all old, like, country manors like this, used to have a room that was used expressly to smoke meat as there was no refrigeration, so smoking meat would give it a much longer shelf life back then. This room, which hadn't been touched in forever, was equipped with a dirty old mattress on a metal spring frame. The walls are blackened with years of soot and burned on grease. And Armin buys a variety of sex toys, both large and small, whips and flogging tools. He makes his own cat of nine tails. He buys handcuffs and puts them all in the room. He sets up a table, a bench, and a sideboard for his instruments. He installs five large butcher hooks in the support beam in the ceiling and installs on the wall a St. Andrew's cross, which is a large wooden X with shackles at the top and bottom of the X that you would use to tie up like hands and legs. Most famously, it's used to torture and execute St. Andrew. That's why it's called that. And nowadays, it's very popular in the S&M community. They're not killing anybody, but they use it for their own purposes. Again, I'm not here to shame anyone who is in a consensual situation and wants to utilize any of these non-harmful fantasies. A lot of people live happily in master-slave relationships. They feel fulfilled. Good for them. Find your joy. This isn't that. Armin then lines the walls of the room with mattresses so that no one will hear the screams. And that's when you know it's gone from fantasy to reality. Right. 
When he's like, I soundproofed this because you're going to be loud. But also, like, where is this look? Is anybody going to hear them? He lives alone in the giant... Uh, no, they have neighbors. Okay. It's a big estate, but, like, remember, it's a large property, and so I guess the grounds won't seem as large if you also drop a giant house on it. Okay. I don't know, but he did have neighbors, so I guess he figured, like, if this guy's loud enough, I don't want anybody to hear it. Right. Yeah. So after he's all done, he takes pictures of himself standing proudly in the room and then takes to the forums. He posts an ad on the Cannibal Cafe under the screen name Antrophagus, which is a version of a word that means man-eater. That word is Anthropophagus, which is also a very famous Italian film, which has been described as having, quote, a noted place in the annals of, escalation, of the escalation of gore. And the film has cult status um, among, like, fringe horror audiences for being one of, like, the most difficult things to watch. Mm. I'm, I'm not going to talk about what happens in it. I know what happens in it. It's terrible. I'm sure you guys John can has watched it. Wikipedia, <laughs> I hope not. Oof. You can Wikipedia that one. It makes Cannibal Holocaust look tame. So, because of its graphic and realistic depictions of intense cannibalism, that's why this is terrible. Anyway, and I'm sure that was not lost on Armin. Anyway, he posted this ad. It said, quote, looking for a normally built 18 to 25-year-old to be slaughtered and then consumed. And he pressed enter and waited. And he got a lot of responses. Okay. Because again... Right, that's the... That's the thing, that's what you say. Yeah. And he was super excited. A lot of men he, he thought were serious but backed out at the last minute. Of course, they were probably like, oh, you're really going to kill me. I have to go. Yeah. A few of them would string him along long enough to meet in person. They would engage in sex acts, and Armin would perform something he liked to call a cannibal inspection on them. This is an act he kind of became known for in this community. But ultimately, they would decline their own untimely death, and the two would part ways. And to his credit, whatever credit he gets, Armin never did anything they didn't want to happen. Okay. So if they were like, no, I don't want to actually get hurt, he was like, okay, have a good day. All right. He didn't, and he never like put pressure on that situation either. He wasn't like, you said you have to do it. He was always just like, nope, you have to want to do this. The only way I'm going to do it is with someone who wants it. Mm-hmm. So. All right, all right. Then in early 2001, Armin gets a response from a screen name. Uh, the screen name is Kator, C-A-T-O-R who says that he would like to be Armin's victim. Armin's been burned before, though, and he's like, are you serious? Because a lot of people aren't serious. <laughs> I don't trust you. I have I a hard time trusting people. I can't trust men anymore. <laughs> but Cater replies via email, quote, I am Cater. Yes, I really want to do it. I want you to cut off my cock, tear the flesh off my bones while I'm still alive and eat me up. Okay. Ooh, that escalated quickly. Cater. Cater, coming in. Coming so in Armin hot. was like, yes, it's going to happen. Kater was actually a 43-year-old engineer from Berlin named Bernd Jürgen Brandis. Bernd had disturbing fantasies of his own. He was obsessed with having his penis bitten off. Seriously. Wow. Bernd also had a double life. He had come out as homosexual a long time ago, and in doing so, his relationship with his father had kind of dissolved and was beyond repair. He lived with a man named René, with whom he was in a committed relationship, but Bernd longed for violent sexual experiences. He wanted, like, the height of something painful, which no one seemed to be able to deliver. It made him kind of mad. He had longstanding relationships with several local sex workers and people who frequented local S&M clubs, people who have testified to the fact that all Bernd wanted was to someone to bite the shit out of his penis. All he wanted was someone to bite his dick off. He asked so many people. And he was very, very, very serious about it. Ooh. Yeah. And while a few of them— But did he—he he only asked men? 
Yes. Because I'm sure there's several women that would have been like, yep, I will bite your dick I right will off. Bite that dick right <laughs> off. If you you better stop talking, I'll do it right now. I, yeah. It's already done. <laughs> it's you done. didn't even know. I did it. So fast. <laughs> Just men. So a few of them would like be like, I'll bite it a little bit, but I don't want too much. Just a nibble. Well, and one of them was like, Yeah, he had bite marks all over his dick because that's all he wanted in life. Ooh, I'm like, I don't it's have gross. a dick and I'm uncomfortable. Yep. <laughs> The thought of being the one who's doing it is, like, gross, too, and I can't even. All right. Anyway, nobody was ever willing to go all the way. That is except Armin. And the pair planned for this day, the day of slaughtering. Sorry. (laughs) Just imagined it again. (laughs) Just, like, I don't know why ripping it off completely seems better than, like, chewing on it. It (laughs) does. I know. The thought of the actual... Uh, sensation. No, I can't. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Continue. <laughs> <laughs> so they planned for the day for a really long time. Having the date first set at February 23rd, but then Bernd had work. Oh, man. Damn. So they pushed it back a day and he had work again. He got busy. So they finally landed on March 9th. Now, there are pages and pages and pages and pages of extremely vile graphic chats between the two of them describing this eventual day. I read them. I don't think you should read them, and I won't make you listen to them. But if you're interested, it's in the book. Man, we could have, like, a back and forth. We could have, (laughs) and both of us would have passed out. They're so bad. This is so bad. It's so bad. There's a lot of, like, ripping and blood and other fluids and dismemberment and cannibalism, and then there's fucking in all of it, and it's Mm. terrible. So— Byrne said what he wanted was to be slowly eaten alive and it for it to be as painful and protracted as possible. I, I can't even imagine a human saying a lot of the things they said, but the pair finally exchanged cell phone numbers and photographs and agreed to meet at the Castle train station at 10.14 a.m. So on March 9th at 7.41 a.m., Byrne buys a one-way ticket to Castle and never comes back. So he didn't buy both tickets. He only bought one way. Right. Just telling. Okay. Armand and Burned meet at the station in Castle at 10.14 a.m. And they recognize each other right away. They're happy to see each other. And they get into Armand's car where Burned immediately is like trying to have sex with him. He's like, okay, let's go. It's on. Right. He is ready to go. Right. Because to, again, to him, this is, well, I don't know what it is to him. It does escalate, obviously. But like this is a... Sexual thing. It's like it's like a role playing game and stuff. That's that's the point. But Armin's like, no, no, no. We have to wait till we get back to my house. This was never the plan. We're not doing this. He has a plan, obviously. So they go back to the manor house and they're supposed to have coffee and talk and be together. But Burns wants none of that. He's like, we have to. Go. I want to see your slaughter room immediately. I want to go right up there. Okay. So Armin is like, oh, fine. Right to the slaughter room, I guess. Because he's compliant. When someone asks him to do something, he does it. So they go up there and he shows it to him, which most people would be like terrified because it's it's serious. But Burns is very into it, obviously. And they immediately start having sex and they turn the video camera on. So then there's video of the two of them having sex in this slaughter room on this filthy mattress uh, for exactly 14 minutes and 30 seconds. Okay. Sure. That's fine. And then Byrne starts to get very impatient, and he really, really, really wants to get to the point where Armin bites his dick off. Man. That's what he wants. He's like, right to the point, let's do it. And Armin's okay. like, no. 
Because then what if you like bleed to death and I had this whole plan for like a weekend before this happened. Aww. And he's like, no, now, now. I want it now, 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 now. And Armin's like, fine, I guess I'll try. So he starts like biting the shit out of him. Okay. But um, this is not an easy task. It's not something that is like quick to do. There's a lot of like connective tissue involved uh-huh. in this. And so he can't really do it. Especially when he doesn't actually want to yet. Right. Of course. So needless to say, it's it's not an easy task, but he does give it more of a vigorous go than other people have. Okay. Uh, and then Bernd gets really angry that it's not happening, that he's not doing it. He's not actually doing the thing he said he would do. And he starts berating Armin. He starts saying, well, you're not mad enough to do this. You're not this butcher that you claim to be. You're not who I thought you were. This isn't going to happen. We're just going to call it all off. Whatever. You can't give me what I want. This is all on video, too. Like, this for sure happens. Mm. And Armin's, like, kind of like, I don't, I don't know what to tell you, man. Like, I tried. I, I can't. Like, and they argue and a little bit. Armin's very, he's all about, um, like, the consensual. Yes. Or, con, what is that? Is, am I saying that yeah, right? Yeah, you're saying it right. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so he's just like, I don't understand. Like, if I can't do it, why are you yelling at me? Yeah, exactly. And so... They have a bit of a disagreement, and then Byrne says, okay, I just want to go take me back to the train station. So they get in the car. Armin's like, all right, that's what you want. That's fine. He drives him back to the train station. They're both disappointed. And then at some point when Byrne has walked away, he turns back around and is like, oh, no, I want to try it. I want to do it after all. He's like, okay, I think maybe we can go through all of this, um, like, and, and you can at least like slaughter me. If I am, like, very sleepy. So they go back to Lustafeld, and on the way there, they stop at a pharmacy. And Armin purchases a bottle of sleeping pills and a bottle of German NyQuil. It's just basically, like, nighttime strong cough syrup. Okay. And he tells the pharmacist, my wife has a cold, and because she is making sounds with her cold, I cannot sleep. Mm. And the pharmacist is like, I don't care. Here you go. (laughs) Do you want one or two? <laughs> yeah, he was like, don't take them together, but that's all I have to say. So on the way back to the manor house, Bernd drinks the entire bottle of NyQuil, German NyQuil, it's not actually that, it's something else, but same thing, mm-hmm. and um, swallows all the sleeping pills. So by the time he gets back, he's starting to get pretty sleepy, and he's like, I think, I think this would be better now, and I won't move, and like maybe we can do it. So they go back up to the slaughter room, and he's like, I want you to like cut my dick off. I know you can't bite it off. We already tried. It didn't work. But I need you to, like, take a sharp knife and cut it off. And Armin's like, okay. All right, fine. So they get him up there. He gets, uh, like, a wooden tray, puts it on the tray, gets a carving knife, starts to try. It's difficult, more difficult than he thought. Right? Burns is again yelling at him, you're not man enough. Why can't you do this? He's like, I think the knife isn't sharp enough. Let me just get my other one. God, isn't he too sleepy to yell? <laughs> I don't know why this doesn't affect him more. I guess adrenaline. And then he gets his other knife, and in like one swift movement, it works. Ooh. Yeah. And Burned is like screaming. He's like, you really did it. You really fucking did the thing. And he was like, yeah, you said. You said to do it. You wanted this. So the other part of this equation is what he really wanted to do was he also wanted to eat part of his own penis. Okay. Badly. And he also wanted to video this whole thing so that before he died, he could play it back and watch it all happen. Okay. So they try to do that after Uh removing it. He's like holding it 
like a fucking hot dog. Like, look at that. But you can't just, we've already established that it's hard to just bite into something like that. Yeah. And Armin is like, why don't we cook it? Yeah, you got to cook the sausage. Got to cook it, right. Otherwise, it's too tough. So he goes downstairs and he puts it in a pan with some oil and garlic and onions. And he sautés it up, but he burns it. Yeah. So then they both try it anyway, but it's very tough and gummy. Because mm. that's why nobody eats dicks, FYI. And other reasons. Right. But, but um, so they, they just like throw it to the dog. And the dog eats it? Apparently so. There's no other mention of the dog ever, so I don't know where this dog came from. But they yeah, do say, I was like, wait, I when did he? Have it's a in. The, dog? I know it's in the story. I don't know why. Maybe it's not true, but that's what it says. Okay. Um, so then he goes back upstairs, and they kind of he had he had bandaged him because they both tried to. I guess he had done. I don't know if he came downstairs for this trying to eat a dick portion of the evening. I guess maybe he had, and he had bandaged him up. So then he takes him upstairs and he goes, I don't think you can just kill me while I'm, like, you can cut me up while I'm still alive. I don't think I could do that. Let me bleed to death. I'd like to see that. And Armin goes, okay. Oh, my God. Whatever you want. He goes, what I'd really like is to do so in the bathtub. So Armin goes in the bathtub, the blue bathtub that he took pictures of himself exsanguinating in before. Yeah. And runs warm water and unbandages, burned, and puts him in the water. And he sits in the water bleeding slowly for two hours. Armin puts on classical music, and he goes in another room and reads a Star Trek novel. Oh, so this is just for, like, burn to enjoy. Yep, to just sit there and watch himself bleed out from the dick hole. I mean, to each their own. Right. I mean, <laughs> it's hard to, yeah, and not hard, it's gone. So then, Ooh. yeah, so then eventually he calls for Armin because he's not falling asleep and, like, not dying and um, as, as Armin comes in to check on Armin, Armin is also checking on him every 15 minutes, but eventually he calls out to him and he's trying to climb out of the tub himself. And he's like, get me out of the tub. I have to pee. Really? How? How do you think that's going to work? That's what I said to him. Like, what? what? How Just do you? Just pee where you're at. You're in. Uh, it's already the worst thing ever. Just do it. And what does that look like? I couldn't even tell you. And Armin's like, you can't stand up. You can't go to the bathroom. You can't control what's coming out of you. Just He's like, no, I have to. I have to piss. I have to piss. So he brings him back up to the bedroom and like lays him in a bed. And he's like, just pee in the bed. Like it's full of everything anyway. And then he goes unconscious. So his last words were technically documented as, I have to piss. Oh. Terrible. Terrible. So then Armand is, Armand is like, all right, I, I guess this is it. So Armand then turns the video camera on again. And the video reveals that you can still see Burns' chest rising and falling. But Armin assumes that he's dead for whatever reason. Not conscious. Well, yeah, but in all the fairy tales, he read that a comatose there you go. person is Doesn't know what's going on. Dead. Yeah. It's fine. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> he says the Lord's Prayer and he kisses him. And then he cuts his throat. Then it's he's wild because like, this is, it's like all mm-hmm. weirdly nice. I know. I know. It's very <laughs> weird. It's very weird. After that, he removes um, Burns' head and takes his remaining body and hangs it on a butcher hook. Okay. Um, and he turns the head to face the body while he's doing this. So Burns is watching it because his dying wish was to watch these things happen. Right. So that was nice of him. Apparently. Very considerate. Yep. Mm-hmm. So then over, the, I'm not going to talk about this in detail, but over the next like day and a half, Armin breaks down 
his whole body into roast steaks and chops until only organs and skeleton bits remains. He then buries the skull and whatever he couldn't break down any further than that. Some of the bones he tries to like bake in the oven until it makes them powder and like smash them up like Dahmer did and like Dennis Nelson did. It doesn't totally work. So he buries the rest on the property of the manor house um, and then puts all of this packaged meat that he has in secret compartments in his freezers. Mm. So there's like a shelf and underneath the shelf in a compartment is like, and it's all labeled. It's like arm, leg, this, that. Like, again. It's like so Hannibal Lecter. Well, there are a lot of like Silence of the Lambs parallels because Armin does go on to like help help police with other cannibal cases. Okay. Which I would say he there's some kind of inspiration there, but there really wasn't. It right. just happened to parallel the events. Uh-huh. Which is very strange. So then the killing occurs in March of 2001, and he is not taken in by police until December of 2002. So in that time period, Armin consumes 45 out of the 65 pounds of burn that he was able to remove. Wow. That's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot. And he period, he doesn't like eat it all in one shot or anything. Obviously, that would be insane. It would be. He And he cooks them in a very intentional manner. He makes himself elegant dinners. He places fine china on his dining room table. He makes them like delicate roasts with sprouts and potatoes and pours himself nice bottle, like nice glasses of red wine and makes like a, it's like a ceremony. It's a religious experience for him. Okay. And he doesn't do it every night either. It's not like as fast as he can. He like, we wait. He's like, okay, tonight? Yeah, I'm going to have that for dinner. Hmm. And so he does. This very much is like the show Hannibal. Like that's how he like yeah. cooks his meals. Yeah. So, and, and during this period of time, Armin is also still looking for more victims. He doesn't stop there. Now, he always says previously that he's looking for this little brother to assimilate with him. And I guess Byrne did not go the way he wanted things to go. It wasn't this romantic week they spent together. And then this, like, symbiotic moment. It was like, you know, he was being screamed at to bite yeah. a dick off. And then this happened. Chaotic. Yeah. Such chaos. So he's back on. Not that I'm giving any excuses for this. Because really, do I think he would have stopped even if it was that way? No, I don't. I think this is an insatiable need that he would have just continued to have. And, and frankly, admits to still having. So... Well, because he's never, like, assimilated with anybody. No, but I think even if he had, I think it would have just continued. And he admits that, yeah. too. So anyway, he's still, he's back on the forums now. And he's trying to to find himself another person, another ideal little brother, is what he calls them all. And um, so this, the same things are occurring. He meets a few people in person. Everybody backs out. And then finally, he encounters a young college student who stumbles on the forum rather unintentionally. He, like, put in the wrong search terms and it came up. And he was like, oh, I wonder what this is. And he looks at it and he thinks this is, like, some weird elaborate fantasy world that people have. And for the most part, it is. So he emails Armin. And Armin sends him back a very detailed, like, here's what it would be expected of a day you, the day you would spend with me. I would take you to my home. I could sedate you if you wanted. We would do this. And then here's how I would kill you. And here's how you would bleed out. And I would slaughter you. And I would eat you. And the student is like, oh, no. <laughs> no, that is way, way, way more serious than I thought anybody was going to be. Yeah. And he doesn't sleep for two days. Like, okay. this kid is totally traumatized yeah. by it. And so after a couple of days, he decides he's going to call the police, which he does. And he brings forth a very, very traceable email. This is before you really knew, like, internet interactions like people are going to find out what you've done 
easily. Everything you do can be traced. Mm-hmm. Either that or he just didn't care or he just didn't assume anyone was ever going to report him because he didn't think he was doing anything wrong. Either way, the police are obviously alarmed and they're able to trace Armin's email address to his home. Uh, and from here on out, everything kind of unravels for Armin in slow motion. The police show up at his home on December 10th And over the next three days, they uncover an overwhelming amount of horrifying evidence, including the video of the actual events with Byrne. So, like, Mm. police had to watch that, and it was just, you know, you're not the same again after that. Two members of his his eventual jury also had to watch the video in full. Wow. Yeah, they were, like, older women, too. Like, women in their 50s watched this video. And they were probably like, we could have bit the dick off. We would have been able to do it. No, yeah. they were just, they were ill and yeah. Nobody, oh, everybody needed so much therapy. It like really really traumatized anybody who encountered it. It was it was bad news. And during those three days, Armin sees a lawyer who he confesses to. The lawyer was like a local person in his village to who, who had known Armin his whole life. He was like, "Why are you here? Like, what's going on?" Or I think it might have been a woman actually. So he tells the lawyer, "I killed a man." And the lawyer's like, well, where, where is it? Where's the body? We have to tell the police. They have to uncover evidence. And he says, I ate him. Oh. And then the lawyer's like, oh, well, this is different. Yeah. Wait, so when did he tell her? So the police originally came to his house on December 10th. And after they started collecting evidence, he went to the lawyer. And he was taken in by authorities, I believe, on the, like, 12th. So there's a couple days of them having to, like, find things and prove things. So they take from his house, like, they find the steaks okay. in the fridge that say, like, arm or portion of. Right. And they have to have that analyzed because it does look like pork. It doesn't, you know, human meat doesn't have, like, the words human all over the inside of it. Yeah. You can't tell. And they get all these files which and videos, which they have to go in and watch before they can. Yeah you know, have any kind of proof. So in that time, that's when Armin goes to a lawyer because he's like, I think I fucking need right, a lawyer. Right, need, okay, yeah. okay. And Sorry, I didn't know if he went like earlier in the year and she was like, oh, no. are you crazy? Oh, no, no, no. It's in the same okay. period of time because, you know, once they've taken that video, it's done. Yeah, he's, he's like, I just need a lawyer. I, yeah, there's nothing he can do at okay. this point. So when the police come to take him into custody, he hands over Burns' um, wallet and watch and he was like, this is who this guy was. Okay. Um, and then... They are able to make contact with Burns, um, like live-in boyfriend, and the terrible part about that is that nobody in Burns' life was very surprised. Like the PS, the sex workers that he frequented, and and actually some of whom he had a very close relationship with, they they said they saw headlines that's that, you know, kind of brought out the case, and they were like, "That's Burns. I know it is." Right. And then when they read it, they found out that, yeah, that's exactly who it was. They weren't surprised at all. I mean, that makes sense because it sounds like he wanted it, So, and he kept asking people to do it to him. Yep, exactly. Okay. So a funeral is held for Burned, burying the little bits of him that remained, and it's very sparsely attended, and his father doesn't even go. Mm, What about Renee? Yeah, Renee went. Okay. On January 30th, 2004, Armin is convicted of manslaughter and sentenced to eight years and six months in prison. And this was a huge matter of contention because he was up for, obviously, murder. The thing was, he could be convicted of one or the other. And after review of the case, because there is explicit consent to everything that occurred, he's only convicted of manslaughter. 
And so the case attracts considerable media attention, obviously. What, a, what an insane thing to happen. Right. And the verdict comes back only, again, because of, because of the consent given. But that's not, people don't care about that. The world sees this, like, graphic, horrible murder, and obviously they're going to revolt. Then in April of 2005, a German court ordered a retrial after prosecutors appealed Armin's sentence, arguing that he should have been given um, the sentence of murder because he killed for sexual gratification, a motive proved by his having videotaped the whole crime. Okay. So their, their evidence was like, well, he made a video of what he did so that he could rewatch it for his own personal reasons. So he murdered him. The court ruled that the original trial had ignored this videoing aspect in disproving the argument that Armin only killed because he had been asked to kill. At his retrial, a psychologist stated that Armin could possibly reoffend, as he admittedly still had fantasies about disemboweling and devouring the flesh of young people. Something he still says he fantasizes about in prison to this day. Okay. And I strongly believe that, yes, if he were back out in the world, he would just go right back to what he was doing before. And you said he believes that he would as well? He did for a while, and then now there are some reports of him saying he thinks he's reformed, but there are places where he does himself say, like, yeah, I, I think I'm probably in the right place because I couldn't. This mm -hmm. is just stuff I, I think about. Like, I can't stop it. And for the longest time, they didn't even give him therapy, which is crazy to me. That guy didn't get therapy in jail for a really when your sentence was at first— Seven to eight years. Right. We spoke about this, I think, in the previous episode. Like you, or no, it was in Tyler Hadley's episode. Yeah. But like if you're going to get paroled eventually, you want to know that person is being rehabilitated. Yeah. I wonder what German prisons are like. I don't know. I don't, I don't know much about the German prison system. At, um, oh, oh, no. No, which is surprising, <laughs> right? So on May 10th, 2006, a court in Frankfurt convicted Mivis of murder this time and sentenced him to life imprisonment. Oh. Now he's in jail forever. And since that point, Armin has received therapy, which is, again, funny to me because once you're there forever, you get therapy. But when they think you're going to get let out, you don't. Yeah, that's That's weird. truly bizarre to me. And since receiving therapy, he kind of has admitted that he had a problem and he remains mostly unrepentant for his actions. He never says he's sorry, really, because it was something that Burned wanted him to do. So he doesn't feel like he needs to apologize to, for that. I can understand that, I think. The part he regrets is the actual, like, violence in the situation. Yeah. He doesn't like that he had to murder him. He doesn't like that there was so much... That was such a protracted event. Yeah. But everything else, he has no regret about. Okay. Mm hmm He also has been quoted as saying that he believes there are over 800 cannibals still residing, residing in Germany at this moment. Is that just a number he's, like, pulled out? I think so. Or basing on, like, forums he was on and numbers of participants and things like that. Okay. Because the Cannibal Cafe has since shut down, but it's not the only of his kind. There are plenty That's of other places in the yeah. same... Stuff is still going on. Armin was quoted as saying that people like him should, quote, go for treatment so it doesn't escalate like it did with me. Well, that's nice. Yeah. I mean, to this day, he is in, I want to say maximum security, but I'm not sure how they rate things in Germany. But he has, like, television and PlayStation, and um, he's 
I don't know, he's, every time people go see him or he's interviewed, they say the same things. He's pleasant and well-liked and easy to talk to and his neighbors all liked him. And you would never suspect this guy did all these awful things. And yet when you read the interviews with him, he has no problem talking about them. Yeah. He has no problem going into his entire history and everything that happened. And he makes like little like punny type jokes and stuff too. It's interesting because it's, it's his entire life, that's how he has been. He was a good kid. Yeah. You know, and then he had these dark, weird thoughts. Yeah. That a lot know, of him I, blames also when, when he speaks about it now, he says that like he developed an addiction to the internet and being sucked into this fantasy world, fed fantasies he already had and blurred the line between fantasy and reality. And if that hadn't existed, perhaps he wouldn't have acted upon it because there would have been no fertile ground for like developing these plans and 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 going through with any of these things and meeting these like-minded people. Mm-hmm. Well, again, that's like the catfish stuff. Yeah. Where they do blur the lines a lot. Exactly. Between, huh. I don't know. Yeah, so it's very hard for a lot of people to morally reconcile with this case because how much, how, like, the the how wrong is this? I mean, that's obviously profoundly wrong, but but also it was with someone who consented to do it mm-hmm. every step of the way. I would say that is why it does not bother me that he's not necessarily sorry. Right. Because— he did exactly what the guy wanted him to. Yeah. And that's what he and says in his interviews. He says, this was this guy's fondest wish. His greatest fantasy was for these things to happen to him. To, and I, To the very end. Yeah. And he's like, and I helped him achieve it. Yeah. And a lot of like times. Like he wasn't in the, he was never in the bathtub being like, oh, the, I've, I regret this. Like, you need to save me. No. He was like, I just need to pee. No. And he had said, in fact, he was like, you better not call emergency services. You better not call emergency yeah. services. However, part of me is like, was he like, you better not call the doctor. Call the doctor. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But you can't read nuance. You can't read subtext and stuff like this. And maybe Armin couldn't either, to be honest with you, because right. he clearly couldn't read the nuance of this role-playing forum that he took as to be absolute reality. And yeah. just kind of cast his line out until he found the one other person out in the sea of people that felt the same way. I guess if Armin feels like he is in the right place now, mm-hmm. then I am also okay with his sentencing. I feel like he has just, I kind of trust him to be in control of his life. <laughs> I feel like he's, I mean, he's made some weird choices, yeah, but he hasn't hurt anybody that did not want to be hurt. I think the dangerous <laughs> thing, I mean, obviously all of it's dangerous and you can't just be eating people in your mansion, but- Unless they want it. I I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I guess that will open some dangerous doors legally too. But the other thing is, what if you run into a person who thinks they want that and then is too frightened to back out? And there's, there's also like a line there that none of us can speak to because we weren't there. Yeah. I mean, but I guess that's with anything. Yeah. That happens with like women and sexual encounters. All the time. Yeah, but we think that's awful and that it shouldn't. Right, Likewise, right. And that's you know? where that's wrong. Yeah. Sure. But it would be a hundred times worse if it was something like that. Yeah. And you felt like you had gotten yourself in over your head. You're in this guy's house. And you're like, well, now I'm done for. Like, I can't get out of it. He's bigger than me. He has all of the sharp things. 
you don't necessarily think this guy that's standing over you with a knife is going to be like, oh, cool, cool, cool. I respect your decision to not do this anymore. Yeah, that's like the that Luca. He's a lot worse. No, he's a lot worse. Opinion. No, I know. He's a lot worse because he, he went into it like intentionally wanting to harm right. people no matter what. Well, also that guy did not volunteer to be hurt. Well, that's what I mean. Yeah, that's why. But it just reminds me of what you're talking about. Reminds me of that. So. What was his last name? Luca Magnata. Yeah. Yeah. So that situation can be scary in that regard too. Plus like what if he had somebody there who like freaked the fuck out? Yeah. None of it is like you shouldn't, it really shouldn't set set a stage for that being something that is fine because the the it's so hard to say there was that much control because a person's, like your reflex is to not die. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that guy was just an anomaly. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, I guess that's what makes this case weird is because he it found was the so one con- person consensual that. Right. <laughs> so there's a lot of movies about this. There's there's several full-length ones. There's uh, an episode that I really want to watch, and I'm hoping that you and I watch it together, and then we can do some patron content, like, reaction to it, of the HBO series. I think it's called Room 104, I think is the name of it. You guys, I could be wrong, but it's an anthology supernatural horror type series about a hotel room and all this like crazy shit that happens in the same hotel room. And in this episode, it's based on this case. And um, the actor that plays Colin Robinson on What We Do in the Shadows <laughs> plays, I believe, the Armin Mivis character. It's so perfect. <laughs> so I want to see it so bad. Yeah. Um, patrons, hopefully we can have like a review of that for you because mm-hmm. that would be really fun. But yeah, that's the story. Wild. So wild. So wild. Toast? Toast. The cast of characters is rather large and blurry. I don't know who comes out in a way that I'd want to celebrate them. His friend, um, Klaus. Oh, yeah. With all the fun quotations that he had. Yes. I do enjoy Klaus. Cheers to Klaus. Cheers to Klaus. I don't know that I have to, I, I don't even know. Maybe the dog that appeared out of nowhere? The, the possible dog. Maybe there was a dog. Cheers to maybe that dog. Okay. And if we were consumed by our darkest fantasies... And had to eat a dick... We, we would, would be, be dead. dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at WouldBeDeadPod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. So that's why if I wasn't on any lists, I definitely am now because this is some dark web shit.